episode of the Classic Pickup Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Whips, and I hope you enjoy this episode. This podcast is sponsored by Classic Pickup Supplies, your number one Ford and Chev pickup parts supplier. Mention Classic Truck for a 10% discount off your first order. Classic Pickup Supplies, located in Coolum Beach, Queensland. Call 07 5446 2667. Or visit their website, www.classicpickupsupplies.com.au. Classic Pickup Supplies, dedicated to the restoration and preservation of the pickup. Episode 67. This week I catch up with Barry Wilson. He's uh, from Wilson Auto Repair in Garland, Texas. Barry reached out to me, actually, and um, I actually don't know how he sort of heard about the podcast, but he reached out and... uh, very passionate about classic cars, um, been restoring and, and building them for a long time, as you'll hear. So he reached out and just uh, was interested in having a chat, and I said, why not? Fantastic. So we had a really good chat. I really enjoyed it, actually, and uh, I hope you guys do too. Just some general information and uh, some advice for people, you know, buying old classic trucks, um, especially from the States. So good info in there. Uh, so he has a website, and during the interview, um, he says it's lindsayclassiccars.com but it's actually just lindsaysclassics.com. So jump on there and have a look. He's got um, he's got quite a bit of information on that site. There's not really much in the way of trucks for sale on the site yet. Uh, hopefully it'll build up and he will get more on there, but there's good general information about um, purchasing vehicles and restoring them and stuff like that. So worth a bit of a look. So it's great to chat with Barry and I hope you guys enjoy that one. Um, just wanted to touch base quickly. Um, pickup trucks down under, they had their... Um, sort of a, a cars and coffee deal down in Melbourne uh, a few weeks ago and, and that was really popular and I know there was a, a bunch of people I saw commenting afterwards that lived in Melbourne and they'd missed out on it, they hadn't heard about it and so I thought I'd just give you a heads up if you didn't know. Um, there's another one coming up in Sydney, it's on the 26th of June and it's in Smithfield at, um, at Oxytech. So, Jump on pickuptrucksdownunder.com.au to register for that. It's from 8 till 12 in the morning. Um, and I'm hoping to get up there. I really want to um, get up there and have a go. I, I couldn't make it to the Melbourne one. But, yeah, I really like to just come and meet a bunch of you guys who message me and, you know, um, chat on Facebook and Instagram and put some faces to some names and, and check out these trucks in person. So hopefully that'll happen. Um, but until then, yeah, enjoy this episode. And um, I hope you guys get a bit of work done on your vehicles over the Easter break. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of guys that go for a drive in their vehicles, but there's a lot of guys like me who are still trying to get their truck somewhere new drivable. So if it's sitting in the shed and you haven't touched it for months, you know, just go, just go do 15 minutes. Just go, you know, sit in it for a bit and think about what you want to do and, and try and get a little bit of a, a pep in your step and, you know, there's jobs you can do that don't cost money. You know, you can fix a bit of rust. You can do some, you know, pull apart a part and, and why wheel it down. So if, if it's money that's holding you back, just go find a couple of jobs that don't cost money and it's just one more job ticked off your list and, and a little bit closer to getting that rego and, and out, the, out the door and on the road. So, yeah, enjoy your trucks. Um, jealous of the guys already driving them. You know, I, I still... Uh, have mine sitting out the front of my yard. I think people think it's yard art these days, but uh, just waiting on time and money. You know, I need to take my own advice and do a bit more work on it. So maybe I'll do that later today. Anyway, here's Barry Wilson. Thanks, guys, for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Barry from uh, Wilson Auto Repair joining us on the podcast, mate. Thank you for um, for sitting down and having a chat to us today. Thanks. Appreciate you having me on. No, it's fantastic. I mean, you reached out to me and... Um, and this is great because I don't know uh, a whole lot about you, and uh, and we literally we haven't been speaking for an hour before recording. We're we're jumping right into it, and uh, you were just asking me the question about um, you know vehicles in Australia and and whether we had manufactured much of our own stuff, whether it was all imports. Because um, you're sitting here looking at a '53 Suburban sitting behind me, which we certainly did not manufacture here in Australia. We we didn't get the Suburbans, but 
we uh, we did get the um, the Chev trucks, both both like the thirty one hundred size, and then also the bigger um, truck, which is probably more popular here. And they were built by an Australian company called Holden, um, which is a GM company here. So they did the uh, the cabs. I'm not sure how much they built, but they definitely built the cabs. And yeah. then and then we imported from Canada, I believe, like the chassis and the motor and all that sort of stuff. So it, there was a bit of a loophole um, back in the 40s and 50s as far as protecting the Australian auto industry. You couldn't bring a vehicle in without huge tax excises. And so what they did is they had this like a knockdown version of a vehicle so it wasn't complete. They brought, you know, three quarters of the stuff over and then we manufactured the cabs. And uh, so we have factory right-hand drive Chev trucks here in Australia and they're fantastic. So, yeah. Big, big uh, the impression I get about Australia is that the, uh, the guys over there really like the old classic cars. And I, I also see that uh, many of them are real fond of the Cleveland engine made by Ford back in the 70s. Uh, real popular, at least, you know, I watch Facebook and like to interact with all of the comments. And it seems like people out of Australia talk a lot about the, about the Cleveland. Yeah. I mean, you know, over there in the States, you, you've got this Chev, Dodge, Ford kind of, they're the, I guess, your big three manufacturers and you grow up, you're either a Mopar man or, you know, you're a Ford man or a Chev man. And, and here in Australia, you really, I mean, realistically, that was the two big ones were Ford and Holden. And so, you know, if your dad was a Holden man, you were a Holden man. And, you know, the same as what you would deal with there. Um, we had a pretty big Chrysler Valiant um, contingency here too. That would be probably came in number third back in those days. But, um, yeah, you, you're kind of, you're a Ford guy or, or you're a Holden guy. And, uh, yeah, the 302, very popular motor here in Australia and has been um, forever. So which one are you? Ford or Holden? Uh, you know what? I grew up, my dad was a Ford man. So he, yeah. we had a, a Ford custom line, which I guess is uh, Crown Vic, you would probably call it. Um, right. Or, you know, a Victoria. So he had a 1959 model. Um, so yeah, I grew up, I had Fords in my youth, definitely. Um, but I'm not really, these days, I wouldn't say that I am brand loyal in any way. I, I love the era of the mid 40s to mid 50s. So, I've got a 1950 Chev truck that I'm building. So, but I also just bought a 48 Ford F1 um, that I've imported as well. So I just like the the shapes, you know, like that really classic. Um, you know, if it's an international or a, I don't mind. So. Right. I got a 49 F1. I call it. Yeah. His name is Frankie. Do you have a name for yours? Uh, the name for it is I wish it would hurry up and clear customs so I could get it here at my yard. So it's not here yet. <laughs> oh, I got you. Yeah, but it's um, it's a it's a, just a rolling uh, a rolling body. It doesn't have an engine or a transmission. I I just I got, got it out of uh, it's come out of Kansas, and I got a feeling it's going to end up being a bit of a flip because it's taken me so long to get it that uh, I've moved on to other projects. But it's um, it's a cool original patina truck, so that's what I like about it. Yeah. Mine came out of a pasture north of Dallas, Texas. I gave $600 for it many years ago, and it's a, it's a patina truck. You know, it's all rust, yeah. and I completely rebuilt the chassis. It's got a six-cylinder with a heavy-duty four-speed in it, and uh, it's the kind of truck that I remember as a real old boy that my grandfather, who was a Ford dealer back in Oklahoma, used to pick me up in to uh, take me down to his old garage, you know, and I'd walk around down there and pretend that I was part of the gang, you know, at about five years old. So I had a real affinity for the the F1 trucks. I really liked them. Yeah, they're, they're a very classic um, style. They, I, they're not as popular here as I think. I don't understand why they're not, but I think, um, you know, as far as buying a, a vehicle and importing it, I think Chevrolet probably has the, the lion's share here in Australia. But um, there's definitely a lot of uh, nice Fords around. I mean, we, we had a lot of... Um, Probably once you get to the dense side Fords, they're a pretty popular vehicle here for the tradesmen in the day, and there's a lot of them around. But, um, you know, bump side and, and earlier, um, they tend to be the bigger trucks, so what, you know, like a more of a grain truck or something like that, so they have the bigger oh, guards. Right. Yeah. So. Yeah, so so you you run a shop there in, uh, in Texas called Wilson Auto Repair. 
tell us a little bit, you know, let's go back and learn a little bit about you, Barry. And, you know, you were talking about, you know, your dad had a, your granddad had a shop maybe. Grandfather, so you, yes. Yeah. Give us a little bit of a, a rundown on, you know, your, your history into automotive. And then, you know, did you inherit the shop? Did you start your own shop? How did all that happen for you? Well, I, I started out, uh, of course, hanging around in my grandfather's Ford dealership. He kind of passed away while I was in high school. So that ended kind of early. And I ended up at a university in, in Oklahoma called Oklahoma State University with a, ended up got a degree in Oklahoma in, in engineering. And uh, out of college, I went to work for Ford Motor Company and worked at their district office in Oklahoma City and then transferred to Dallas, which is where I live now. And I've always been here since I transferred. Worked there about four years and then went to work for a company by the name of American Motors Corporation, which was uh, a short-lived two-year stint. They, they didn't last a whole lot long after that. And then Chrysler Corporation bought them out. Ended up in business for myself. I have a garage in a suburb of Dallas, Texas, and it's Wilson Auto Repair. And I've been there 40 years at that same location. Uh, started out fixing, you know, the cars that nowadays are classics were the cars that I worked on, you know, when I first began and yeah. had a little bit of a pause there and worked on the, uh, what you'd call the everyday drivers. And about 20 years ago, got into the classic cars completely. And that's all we do. Uh, I have 13 employees. We have about 30 to 50 cars there all the time that we're working on. And some of them are complete restorations. Some of them are just fix it up, make it run. Uh, but most of them are uh, intense amount of work where people want that car as a dependable vehicle that they can get in and go and, and enjoy and not have problems with it. So we do a lot of work on them to make sure that they're in really good shape. Got a body shop, do a lot of paint and body. Uh, it's all restoration work. Though I don't do any collision work. And uh, recently, uh, uh, because I get so many cars there that are bought on the Internet, sight unseen, uh, I have realize that people need a little bit of help uh, figuring out what the best thing to do uh, when they're buying a car. And uh, I started a, a site where you can buy, sell, you know, where kind of like eBay, you know, if I don't take a position in it. They just list a car on my site and a buyer buys it off of the site. It's called Lindsay's Classic Cars. And on that, uh, you know, my, my sole purpose for doing that was hoping that maybe I could help people avoid some of the catastrophes that they get themselves into by buying cars that are uh, not what they're supposed to be and teach them how to, how to kind of stay away from the cars that are a bigger project than they'd like to take on. Yeah. Well, you know, if you can imagine um, a guy here in Australia having a few beers on a Friday night with his mates and he buys a car in the U S on eBay sight unseen and then pays another eight thousand dollars to ship it here to australia before he discovers how much of a pile it is um we get a little bit of that happening as well so so do you predominantly when you say doing a restoration um how much of it is a you know original restoration and, and are you finding that more people want to do an upgraded suspension and engine drivetrain sort of situation are you doing the resto mods or are you predominantly doing like original restoration we do probably 100 percent resto mod uh, yeah. i kind of encourage that because most of the uh, buyers of those cars will, bought them for recreational purposes they're not really interested in collecting or trying to uh, worry about value so you know we upgrade the, to fuel injection or new carburetors and go to electronic uh, distributors uh, change out the suspension so that they've got good suspension on it add power steering on the mustangs you know there's an upgrade on the early mustangs it gives it a lot better uh, add an upgraded air conditioning system and, of course, good sound system so that when they get in it, uh, it'll start, run, drive, and stop, and they can have a good time the, the few times that they drive it each month. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, you're pretty spoiled um, being in Texas that you, you probably don't even really know what rust is um, compared to <laughs> <laughs> a lot of a lot of the northern states. You know, I, um, I, it's always the classic thing here in Australia. You know, you, you, you know you've got you buy an original, either a Arizona or a Texas truck because they they're just bone dry and the rust is probably just surface rust. You know. Yeah, we do get rusted vehicles uh, because people buy nowadays. They buy all over the country mm. and ship the cars in. And uh, I, I noticed the probably the ones that are the worst right now and probably the most popular are the early Broncos. And the, you know the, how they were used early on was a 
a farm truck or something out to pasture. And, and when they quit running, then somebody put a chain on it and pulled it under the closest tree and left it there. Now they've become quite popular in the United States. And they, they, they were full of water for 15 or 20 years before somebody tried to resurrect them. So we, we do a lot of floors and quarter panels and cab corners and uh, rust repair to get, get to the point where we can actually bodywork it and then paint it. Yeah, it's a, it's quite a phenomenon. Those early Broncos—they're almost worth their weight in gold at the moment, aren't they? They're just—they've gone silly. Yeah, they have. Of course, it doesn't hurt when they go through Barrett Jackson and Meekum and the auctions that are going on here, and they bring those phenomenal numbers. I, I saw a Bronco online just recently that you know the, the axles were barely hooked up underneath it, and it was you know in the twenties what they were asking for. It. it was just a project truck. Nothing, nothing had been done to it. It's just crazy that you could think you could pull one out from a pasture and get fifteen or twenty thousand dollars for one. Yeah, but then if you put the same year model, you know, like a Scout eighty or something beside it, it doesn't even get half the money. It's it doesn't really make right. much sense. Yeah, yeah, and and the bla you know, you'd think that the Blazers were really kind of a lot bigger vehicle, uh, and and a lot of people like those, but I see very few of those compared to the Broncos. I've got a number of Broncos in my shop. Secondly is the Jeeps, you know, the CJs. I, I do a lot of work on them and the same thing with them. They've been sitting somewhere or, you know, the, se the second thing that happens is it was grandpa's truck. You know, it actually sat in a barn for 20 years and now they want to get it back out and resurrect it, get to use it. Yeah. It's, there, there's certain models of vehicle that just become an iconic vehicle and the value therefore comes from that. I mean, the, the split window combi is a classic example of that. I mean, absolutely horrendous thing to drive um rusts out everywhere but you know they you can't even buy one these days yeah they're they're really rare you know a lot of the shelbys are are really sought after and it's nice to see those ones i've had some come in that have been really nice vehicles you know that we've been able to help them keep them going but then some of them get uh, you know kind of beat up over time and not taken care of so yeah, the split window, I had, I had a 63 Roadster, which I enjoyed for a long time and I was in the middle of a restoration and I unfortunately had to sell it because we started having kids and I needed, needed to maybe get out from under some projects for a while. But that's one of those cars I wish I hadn't let get away. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess over all your time, you know, like anyone that's had some vehicles over the years, you know, that the ones you wish you never sold because the, the value of them now is, is just incredible. And um, do, you, do you have a pretty large collection or have you managed to thin the herd and, and keep it reasonable yourself? You know, I have about 16 cars that I own. Uh, I'm a cheap buyer uh, because I get the cars that are just, you know, pitiful. And uh, I slowly have been fixing them up. I've got some about five to 10 drivers that, out of that group that uh, I could use. And uh, I have a 69 Corvette and a 65 Olds and that Ford pickup. And then I have a an F-156 and an MG and a Mustang convertible. So I, I kind of have a, a gamut of, you know, large collection that I get to enjoy and, and I drive them back and forth to work when the weather's nice. Yeah, oh, that's awesome. So I guess, um, you know, part of the reason you reached out to me was was to share a little bit of your knowledge on, on you know, buying a classic vehicle and that sort of thing. And, and I think it's quite pertinent perhaps, you know, to us here in Australia, it often is just a Facebook marketplace ad or, a, you know, maybe an eBay or something like that. And, you know, guys often are looking for something specific. And, you know, let, let's say it's a 72 uh, Chevy pickup short bed. You know, that's the sort of really popular vehicle over here. And, you know, what, what would you sort of give as advice, you know, when you're looking for something like that? And, and are there businesses there in America that you could have someone – you know, say for 150 bucks or whatever, go and give it a check it out and make sure it's all fairly legitimate before you buy it. Like, what's your experience with that stuff? Well, I, I haven't found, and I'm sure they're out there, but I have not found very many people that evaluate uh, a vehicle for you. So if you're 1,500 miles away from the, the vehicle that you want to buy, there's not that many people out there that are able to give you a good uh rundown on it to tell you whether it's worth the money that they're asking for it. So that you're kind of on your own. And uh, I think some of the things that you can do to keep out of trouble is to ask a lot of questions about the statements that people make 
with regard to how they're representing the vehicle. So you'll notice that a lot of them say uh, it's just recently been restored or the motor's just been rebuilt or, you know, some, something that tries to add value to it. And in many cases, I'm sure they have, but it always helps to see something written, uh, a receipt from the transmission shop or uh, documents that show that, that it was restored. Uh, as I've told people before, when I have so many pieces of information about mine because I put so much effort into it and I'm so proud of them that if you want to see it, I can show it to you from the, the very beginning to the very end and you can see everything that happened. So that, that really does eliminate a lot of the problems that you're going to get into as, as rather than taking somebody's word for it. I'm, I'm helping a guy right now to look for a pickup and he was willing to take somebody's word that it was a great truck. And I said, well, let's see some information about what they say has happened to it. And uh, they didn't have anything. So uh that's a real important step i think yeah definitely and and the other thing too you know like it's i think a real danger is to find something that's cheaper but you know quite often if you spend another couple of thousand dollars on something that's really dry and unmolested you you save extra thousands of dollars down the track when you go to paint and bodywork and that sort of stuff i mean obviously if it's already been painted it's very hard to know what's going on underneath it which you know, I, I prefer, I, I buy stuff that's almost straight out of, the, out of the paddock or out of the shed because I know that it's unmolested and I know that whatever I'm going to do to it, it's going to be done properly. Um, so, yeah, that's, a, that's always a hard one, I think. Yeah, I, I really think that's, that's important that you, you think about that. Uh, you know, finding a vehicle that, it, it, that has had a very good pedigree background, meaning that it was probably maybe a one owner or two owner and has been in a garage and you can talk to the people that had it. That's pretty difficult to do nowadays. So you have to be pretty careful about what you're, what you're getting into when you buy it. And, and so many people are so interested and eager to buy cars. They just don't stop and spend the time to look into all the things that they should look into. Yeah. Yeah. I know the big thing for us, I, I don't know how much you know about, our engineering laws here in Australia, but you know we're we're very restricted on what we can do to a vehicle, um, and it has to all be signed off by a, like a, a qualified vehicle engineer. So you know, if I wanted to put a Mustang two front end in this suburban, for instance, it you know it has to all be engineered and specific and correct, and like we I couldn't put drop spindles on this because they're not engineered here in australia or it's very difficult to go through that testing and expensive and and so that's another pitfall for australian buyers quite often is that you know you buy something and say that was on an s10 chassis which is quite a popular swap obviously for the pickups um there's certain states in australia where you would never get that chassis engineered and registered on the road so um that's a pitfall that i you know you hear a lot of guys they'll buy something online because it looks great it's got a great stance but you know maybe they've got a nova front clip welded in it or something like that and it, it's yeah it's because they're in australia yeah they're in america sorry you know apart from maybe smog there, there's not really much um restrictions to what you guys can do right yeah we don't have any of those kind of restrictions you know it, i have people come in and they want to drop them but mo mostly raise them nowadays so the broncos you know get a three and a half inch lift and we don't have to get permission to do any of that. We just buy the, the parts and, and move on. It, it's pretty easy to, to do whatever you want to do to it. And of course, motors are your choice here. You can pick whatever you want, put it in there, transmission, rear axle, whatever. Yeah. 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 I mean, like if I've got a four wheel drive, um, I can't even put 35 inch tires on it without having an engineer sign off on that. You know, it's, it's very restrictive here. So, they're, they're all the boundaries that we sort of work towards with our classic classic vehicles is that, you know, not only, you know, we sit here and watch all these American shows and we're just so envious, you know, that you can just wheel it in the garage on the weekend and swap all this shit out and then drive it down the street. And, you know, like for us, it's a 12-month um, massive headache. So, I mean, there's there's ways to do it and you've got to learn what works best and what doesn't and that sort of thing. But, yeah, it's, it is quite Wow, that, that's amazing. You know, we'll, we'll take older vehicles that are drum brake and and just buy disc brake packages for them and convert them, uh, add power brakes, add power steering, all, all the things that, that upgrade the vehicle and never have to think about somebody coming by and inspecting it. 
you have to take it to a station or someplace or does they come out to your house or how does that work? Uh, yes, yeah, so it's a process. So normally what you do is you would, you would say for this build, so this is getting um, full airbag, um, chassis notches, LS engine, like the whole works. So, you know, we engage an engineer at the start of the project, basically talk about what we want to do. He sort of would advise me in, you know, like if you use this four link um, from this manufacturer, then I'll tick it off because I know that they build quality engineered stuff. And, you know, like you make a bit of a, like building a house, you go to an architect and you make a plan. And then effectively, as you go through certain stages of the build, you, you would get your engineer to check off on it and make sure everything, like your welds are correct, for instance. You know, like I see so many posts from um, guys in the States, you know, especially on Instagram, they're posting, oh, here's, here's the rear notch I did on the weekend. And you look at the welds and you're just like, I can't imagine. <laughs> I don't feel yeah. safe that your vehicle's on the road, you know. So yeah. um, whilst it is restrictive, I, I think that it's not a bad thing. I just think that we're too restrictive. And I think you guys are probably the opposite. So there's got to be a balance in the middle. But anyway, that's the way it is. So is the engineer employed by the country or the state or the city or is he just an independent? No, so he's he's qualified. So he's, you know, government-recognized uh, vehicle engineer. So so for me to take my vehicle to like what you would call a DMV and get it get it registered, I have to have that engineer certificate signed off with me to then get it to the DMV and get it registered. So I see. Yeah. So you have, then, to, you have to have the correct paperwork to get it all through. Yeah, and they, and and part of that engineering is that they will they will take it to a track and do um, brake and steering tests and all those sort of things as well. So it um. The, the good thing about it is I know that when I'm roaring down the highway at, you know, 60 miles an hour, that the car coming the other way isn't about to break in half and crash into me. You know? So there, there's a safety factor, and I think it's it's not ridiculous. But the, the biggest problem we have is that, you know, we're, we're a country with, what, seven states or states and territories. We're not, you know, you guys have got 52 of them. But even with our seven, if I get it engineered in Victoria and I want to sell it to a guy in New South Wales, he has to get it re-engineered because they don't recognize the Victorian engineering rules. So it, it's really, it's a, it's a complex situation, but you know, that's what we're dealing with. Well, yeah. well, maybe it'll get easier some of these days. You know, it's such a, it's a hobby uh, for me, I think. And it's a hobby for anybody that buys a classic car, just like having a set of golf clubs or a boat or anything that, that provides you with some pleasure on the weekends and also keeps your mind busy when you're not at work. So uh, when they start restricting it, it may it kind of takes a little bit of the fun out of it because you, you, we do a lot of things that we think are uh, unique, maybe that are just fun to do to just to try something different. And you, you see on Instagram and Facebook, both uh, vehicles that people have changed a little bit and it really looks, it looks nice and it's fun to watch. Hmm. Yeah. What would you say uh, is your most popular sort of engine swap that you guys are doing? Are you, are you sort of, seeing the LS and the Coyote, like what, what's your main uh, thing that people are putting in these vehicles? For the engine, uh, I would say that probably the most conversation is about the LS and the Coyote. Yeah. Uh, but the reality is that uh, that's an expensive process if you buy new. Uh, I think most of the people that use that power setup are buying used uh, and we don't do that in my shop. We, we try to do all new motors. So uh, we do some coyotes and we've worked on some LSs, but uh, haven't installed very many of those. The most common problem or most common engine we'd use would be a 350 Chevrolet brand new from GM Performance or a Ford engine that we've built, you know, with a dark block. And that that's a probably a common engine we put in a Mustang or a Bronco. Uh, we, do, we do a V8 Chevrolets in the CJ7s. And their brand new motors uh, coupled up with a, a mid '90s Ford, I mean Chevrolet truck, four-speed. So, uh, and that's that's probably what we do. Uh, I think we do a lot of Coyotes and a lot more LSs if it wasn't quite as expensive to go new, because you can type a lot of money by the time you buy the wiring and the fuel pump and the gas tank and all the electronics that has to go with it to make it operate. We just finished a Coyote in a four-wheel drive. Um, bump side truck and it, it really turned out good i mean really good and, and the guy really likes it and those are really really sweet motors when you get them set up right yeah and are you are you doing like a a carbureted setup most of the time or are you doing like a sniper setup or, or what's the what's the go 
We've done probably more carburetors than fuel injection. We're Holly certified, but uh, the the fuel injection is is more expensive, uh, and it depends on who wants it in their car. It, an older fellow like me still understands the process of starting a, a carbureted vehicle, and it's yeah. not a big hassle. But you get to maybe my kids' generation in their 30s, they've never really driven a car with a carburetor and it confuses them because they're used to just jumping in their Suburban or whatever and start, it starts right up. Mm. So uh, we're, we're slowly kind of acclimating people to fuel injection. It, it still has a few problems. Uh, you know, recently I noticed there was quite a few issues with some programming on some of them. So we kind of held off on some and converted others back to carburetors to make people happier. Mm. And then what about the diesel world? I mean, I know that the, you know, the Cummins, the R2.8 is a popular swap for, you know, say your CJ Jeeps and things like that. Are you dealing with those or are you predominantly uh, a petrol? Sort Just of gasoline. We haven't done any yeah. diesel work at all. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, I think there's a, a general feeling of people I, I know here and then even probably up more in the Northern and Eastern States in America there, but, there's this feeling that, especially with the cool old pickups, for instance, that that they're becoming really rare and they're hard to find, you know, all this sort of thing. And then my experience was I, you know, I traveled um, through Oklahoma and Texas and Kansas and Southern Colorado. And I mean, there's, there's still properties with 20 pickups sitting out the back of them everywhere. So, you know, it's... There's this false feeling, I think, that they're hard to find and they're hard to find without rust. But I, I think the reality is that people just aren't making an effort to go far enough into the um, into the fields, which is where the trucks are. Um, you know, have you have you done much kind of sourcing and driving around, or do you just generally people bring them to you? I, I have not, simply because I'm so busy with the people just bringing me cars. Uh, I haven't really looked around, but I, I would agree with you because they continue to bring vehicles in that need work. And uh, it, it seems like it's unrestricted, but the number of cars that they can find to sell or, or to buy and then bring in. I, I do find a lot of vehicles come in my shop that are family vehicles that have been in a garage somewhere. I, I got a Chevrolet pickup in there right now, short bed that uh, it was in the barn and grandpa owned it. And they're trying to decide whether they want to restore it or what they want to do with it. And I get a lot like that. And then I get a lot of vehicles that that like we talked earlier about where they have purchased something online and uh, didn't work out, need to get someplace to get it fixed where they can get some use out of the vehicle. I actually took a Thunderbird in, you know, four, five, ten years ago that a guy bought at the auction and never did drive it out. It just went to my shop immediately and it took about two years to get everything done where it was dependable where you could enjoy driving it. So uh, most of the stuff comes in like that. It, either either something they bought or something spent in the family. Uh, not very many that uh, where they've been out looking around in a pasture. You know, I think they all depend on the internet to, to buy stuff nowadays. And probably you're right, the, the best buys are out there somewhere in the grass. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we even get that here, you know, with the, with the Chev trucks and things like that. They predominantly were a big flatbed, uh, you know, like an eight-ton truck for for carton hay or, or stuff like that and you know you get people who are around the cities and they're you know like oh I can't find any trucks it's like if you got in your car and went for a drive for a day and you went deep enough into the flatlands they're just sitting around because you know that's that's where they were used it's like um you know like the plow discs on the plow behind the tractor and i live in a mountainous area and they're a popular thing people like an old plow disc for mounting things on and you know and I talk to people quite often. They say, oh, you know, you just can't find, you know, they're really hard to find and they're paying 50 or $60 for a plow disc from an antique shop. And I, and I sort of said, well, of course, there's no plow disc here. We live in the mountains, you know. So it, it's a classic case of you got to go to where they were a popular thing to find them. And, you know, and that's where, you know, I, I remember we drove, we we flew into Arizona and then we drove up to uh, the Grand Canyon, checked all that out and stayed the night up there. And then the mate and I, got in the car and we just basically drove due east for about 20 hours all the way out to uh kansas city and you know there's trucks everywhere out there it's unbelievable yeah but they're a long way from a major you know city or a hub so i think that yeah as 
uh, slowly they'll all get picked off. And I reckon if we had this conversation in 10 years, there may not be very many left. But at the moment, I think they're still out there. Yeah, I, I when I first started working on Classic, I, before about the first 15 years I was working on regular cars, as I told you, but I started working on Classics and I had to conceptualize, you know, what's this going to be like? So uh, my wife and I, when we would take trips, we would always go on the back roads, you know, the two lane roads instead of the, the freeways. And we'd go through these little towns and then we'd drive through the, the back streets and we'd always find cars, always mm-hmm. find cars. And they were always for sale. And I bought a few uh, thinking that maybe I needed to have the inventory there. So if someone was looking for a vehicle, I could supply them with the vehicle and the restoration at the same time. That really didn't turn out to be just probably why I got so many cars because <laughs> I bought more than, than I should have. But uh, that, that was something I thought about. But it, you're right. And they were everywhere. Actually, I think about 15 years ago, they were even more plentiful because I used to see them sitting on the side of the road with for sale signs on them. And I don't see that quite as much as I used to, but they're still out there in the backyards and, and out in pastures and all over. And people are wanting to, you know, you know, the other thing about being in a small town in, in Oklahoma or Texas is when you bought a car, there was no place to get rid of the one that you were driving. So the people would park them in their backyard. And many times they'd take them out and put them in a pasture if they were on a farm. There's just no place to dispose of it. And people drove them right to the point where they were not worth trading in and the dealer didn't want it. So no place to get it crushed. And I used to go drive through cities and I couldn't believe all the stuff that was just sitting somewhere that needed to be restored. Mm. It, it's probably in, in a lot of ways been a, a blessing that these vehicles still exist and that they didn't get, all get crushed, you know. Yeah, for sure. Mm. I ran on to a, uh, I don't know if you know what a sky, a uh, uh, 57, 58, 59 Skyliner that Ford made, but that was a, uh, a vehicle that the hard top folded up and went into the trunk like a convertible, but it was hard. And uh, my, life, my wife lives up in northern Oklahoma when she was growing up and then pulled up by a beauty salon one day. And here was one of those Skyliners sitting there and you could tell it had been sitting there a while and finally found the person that owned it. And uh, her daddy pulled it up there, left that car in that position and went to the nursing home. And uh, it took her a long time to just try to decide whether she wanted to sell it and finally wouldn't sell it to me because she wanted to keep it in town where her dad could enjoy watching it be restored. Yeah. 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 There's a, there's a deep family tie, isn't there? And, and I, I, I find myself being jealous of people who have their grandfather's vehicle or something like that. Cause I think it's, you know, like that's you to the point then when, you know, the, the budget's, no longer that important really it's it's something that you know you're never going to sell you're going to hang on to it anyway so you're going to do all the work that you want to do and uh, i guess for you that's the ideal client because they're going to spend the money right (laughs) yeah i guess so yeah i I get all kinds of people that you know that i think their whole intention is to enjoy it uh i'm not sure that all of them find that having a classic car is as enjoyable as they remembered it back 30 or 40 years ago. So some of them, I feel like I could think of a Camaro that I fixed up that a, a lady had and her daddy gave it to her when she turned 16, brand new car, fixed it up, took it back. I'm not sure they ever drove it again. It, it's just a bucket list thing. They want to get it in good condition to put it in the garage. On the other hand, there are people that uh, you know, just like golf or a boat, you know, you think this ought to be a lot of fun and you get into it and you find out it's a little more work, a little more trouble and you don't use it. Uh, I, I find people after I fix their car, they're getting back in touch with me with the intention of selling it. So, uh, it, but, but that's hobbies, you know, I mean, you have electric train, you think you want to do that for a while and it doesn't really turn out to be as enjoyable as you thought. In some cases, uh, it's better than you thought and you get another one. So the guy I was telling you about with the blue Chevrolet 51 model that I restored for a guy, for him, uh, he, he bought another truck and put this one in his garage cause it was too nice. So. Yeah. Yeah. And as, as a, as a guy who's been in business doing this for a long time, um, I guess I'm just starting to dip my toes in the water. This builds for a, for a friend. Um, so I, I always have this thing in my head and I wonder about, you know, my my ideal world would be i just buy a vehicle and i fully build it to what i think would be great so i don't currently have a customer and then when it's finished i just put it on the market and i sell it and i don't have to deal with all the nightmares of dealing with customers and changing their mind and all this sort of stuff um but the reality of that is that the hours that i put in are not getting paid for directly per hour and you know like depending on how much work you do to the vehicle you know when you sell it is it worth the effort versus obviously 
someone brings you a vehicle like this situation and then you do the work, you know, whether it's on an hourly basis or an agreed price, you know, have you found over the years that, that it's, it's better as a business to have the customer bring the vehicle and then you, you sort of guaranteed to make a profit or, or how does that work for you, you know, as a professional? Well, people come for different reasons. Uh, the, the way it works in my shop is I ask them uh, if they would like me to inspect their vehicle first. Uh, and generally that's what they like. So I give them an inspection list and I charge for that, charge $500 to do that. And from the inspection list, uh, I usually work up uh, what I call a beginning estimate to do all the work on the list. Cause that's usually what they ask me to do. Uh, then, then it, changes from person to person as to what they want to try to accomplish. I think my main goal uh, in dealing with everybody is I don't like to take their money if I can't give them a car back that they can enjoy. Uh, I can't see spending any amount of money on a vehicle at my shop and then having to have it towed back home. That just doesn't seem like a good deal for me. Everybody's not happy. So uh, once they make a decision on what they want to do, uh, I will tell them if that car is going to be something they can enjoy or if it can't. And uh, in many cases, I, not many cases, but a lot of times I'll tell them to take their car home and, and maybe just enjoy it, you know, looking at it or whatever, but don't spend the money. It, and, and sometimes they make such big mistakes. And that's part of the reason I started the Lindsay's Classic Car thing was because I just think that some people make such huge mistakes that they, they don't have any choice. You know, they have to sell it. And then they have this guilt issue uh, about how they're going to sell it because now they know what's wrong with it. Yeah. Something they didn't know when they bought it and they don't want to sell it to the next person. And that, that's another thing I try to explain on my classic car sales site is that I think it's a, it's easy to sell a car. If you tell everyone what's wrong, you know, when somebody inquires, tell them the truth, you know, mm -hmm. here, here's, here's everything I found wrong. I, everybody would be happy after that sale was negotiated and done if both sides, you know, kind of opened up. And many times that doesn't happen. Uh, and I think it would it would serve people better to tell the truth or maybe not the truth, but just disclose everything that you know about it. Because you get it, you get it 15 miles, 1500 miles away and you have bitter feelings when you find out that there was more work to be done than you thought. And the people that do buy those cars are not mechanics. Obviously, they wouldn't be coming to see me. So I, I, back to your back to your answer, though, I, I do make money on it. I try to, you know, I make a markup on parts and the labor. And uh, obviously, I got a family to feed, a house payment, and a car payment. So you know, I've, I've got to make enough money on it to do uh, enough of a profit that it makes it worthwhile. And uh, I tell people that up front too, you know, some people want to bring parts and I don't accept parts for that reason. I say, you know, I, I have to stay here and make a living. And uh, if you bring me a part, uh, there's a lot of things that go wrong when you bring me that part. It act, most of those things cost me money. So mm -hmm. I don't accept parts and, and most of them are understanding. And there are also, they're just, they're different buyers. You know, there are people that want something done uh, inexpensively. Uh, and there are other people that will pay to have it done well. And those are the people that I usually deal business with. Yeah, absolutely. Um, another another thing I wanted to just uh, talk to you about, and I think this is important for our Australian listeners to to maybe get some understanding on, is the title of a vehicle. So here in Australia, for us to ship a vehicle from America to Australia, we have to have a, a clear title for the vehicle. So, you know, the amount of times I'll be on, uh, say, Facebook Marketplace and like just some like an amazing suburban will pop up, and it'll be two or three thousand dollars, which you know, which I think is a really good price. And I'll message the guy and just say, hey, you know, does does this have a title? And oh, no, no title, um, but there's a clean bill of sale or you know something like that. Um, can you speak a little bit to educate us on? So I know some states it's easy to get a title and some states it's not and. I'm currently uh, getting a bonded title for a vehicle in, in Texas, and it seems to be a bit of a nightmare, to be honest. Um, but, you know, like, what what's your knowledge on, on, you know, and even if there is an original title, but the paperwork's lost, is that title gone forever and you have to start again? Like, how does it exactly work? Well, if, if the bill of sale is uh, a common practice here, ultimately for you to uh, be in a good position with that vehicle to sell it again, especially if you're going to put a lot of money in it, you want to get a title. 
Mm-hmm. So I can only speak for Texas because I, I do buy cars occasionally, and, and it is, is always a process to figure out how you're going to get a title because not everything's a clean deal. Uh, as an example, I just bought a uh, MGTF from a guy, and uh, his parents had passed on, and it left it to him. And you know, you got to get death certificates, you got to get you know copies of the the will to make sure it wasn't given to some other member in the family, things of that nature. So what what I find in Texas, the easiest thing to do uh, is to take what information you have and go to the uh, title bureau here and ask them what other pieces of information you need. You may have making five trips down there, but you, you eventually get it. Now, there are a, pla- a few places, and one of the places was named Broadway Title back east, and for I believe it was about a thousand dollars, they would they would transfer and give you a title in a state uh, that you could use to negotiate uh, to, to retitle it in say Australia or another state in the United States. Used to be way back when, and this is where part of this started. There were a lot of states that were called non-title states. So I believe I believe New York, maybe New Jersey was one of those. Alabama, I think, was one. You bought a new car, you didn't get a title, you just got a bill of sale. So now you go 50 years later, that car never had a title that went mm-hmm. along with the car. And that's why you're trying to get, you know, somebody's trying to sell you it as a bill of sale. But there, there are people that do it, but the best thing to do is find the state. If it's a state, say like Illinois, uh, just look up the, the bureau and ask them what the process is. They'll usually be able to help you with that. And usually you have to figure it all out and then getting the paperwork is not that easy. You know, sometimes people are pretty slow about trying to come up with what they need, what you need to, to get a title for it. Yeah. Yeah. Like I can speak from experience what I'm currently dealing with and it's a, it's a 49 GMC Suburban. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's been months of backward and forward between the, um, uh, I guess the courts, like you got to go into the court and do something. And so thankfully the guy I bought it off is, is being, you know, he's an absolute champion and, and he and his wife are doing all of that for me. And obviously I'm paying for them to do it. But, uh, you know, for me to try and get a title for a vehicle from Australia, it's, it's, I think it's almost impossible. So, you know, like that's always my recommendation to anyone listening. If you're buying a vehicle, it's worth getting one with a title if you want to ship it out here, because otherwise you really need to pull it apart and you know as far as say if you wanted to ship a complete vehicle that doesn't have a title to australia you have to pull it apart and then ship those parts in separate shipments because if it's all in the one container then then our australian border customs will look at that as a complete vehicle and they want to see the title to the point where i know um one of the guys i've imported with he had a set of wheels for a harley davidson he had a motor for a, you know, like a Japanese bike. Then he had a frame off something else in the container. And the, it took them months to clear it because they wanted to see the title for the bike. And he had to convince them that there's no way these parts go together to become a bike. But they just saw a, you know, a frame and an engine and some wheels and said, that's a bike. So, yeah, the title's a pretty big thing for us as far as importing stuff to Australia. Yeah, you just have to be careful. I, I find that uh, once the transactions happen or even in the middle of the transaction, the seller uh, is just looking for the easy way out. They're, they're not really wanting to get involved in getting a title. And, and, you know, if they were, they would have had the title in hand when they were selling it. Yeah. But it, it's possible to get one. Uh, and, and that Broadway title is one that I think they're still in business that can help you with that. Uh, you do have to have some notarized signatures and some driver's license on both parts, but they will give you a title. And, and it used to be that way in Alabama, too. They'd give you a title uh, with enough information and a bill of sale. And then you could transfer it from Alabama to Texas or Australia, wherever you wanted to transfer it. But it, it's important. It's very important to have one, I think. Uh, it, it, anything happens, you don't really have a claim on that vehicle. And the, the title, I mean, is that... Is that digitized, digitalized in any way now, or is, is it just that one piece of A4 paper that's in your glove box? And if if you happen to lose it, then you don't have it anymore. Is that still the case? That's the way it is. It's a piece of paper. Uh, and it's issued by. It, it, here's the interesting thing: it's not universal. Each state has their own laws. Yeah. So you know what goes on in Texas is different than what goes on in Oklahoma. Uh, a, a title issued in Texas is issued by the state. I, I think it's still the same way in Oklahoma that you just go to a local 
bureau and they give you a title right there on the spot. It's not the state issue. It's authorized by the state, but you get it in a different manner. And, and like I said, until just recently, there were a lot of states without titles. So they've had a, one of the things that was a big issue back when was the mileage. You know, there was a lot of people turning the miles back on vehicles that were not classics, but other cars. And each state had different rules about the mileage. So it was very, if you could transfer a car from one state to another, you could roll the miles back and there would be no trace. And, you know, they've worked on all of that to try to improve, to keep the honesty out there. So that convolutes the title. And all it is is a piece of paper. It, you can't get another title. That's the thing. You can get what the, you can file in Texas for what's called a, a lost title. And all you have to have is the VIN number. Uh, what, what I always do is, is take a, a, a photocopy you know, on the copier of the title. So I have two copies. I have the original. And if something happens, I got the other, the other one. So that when you do go back to get the title, you've at least got some information and you can prove that you were the owner and you just lost the title. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting. It's, um, it's definitely, uh, you know, the, the safety factor for us in Australia is that you buy a vehicle from someone in Australia that's already imported it so that it's, you know, it's here and it's ready to go. But then you're obviously you're paying for their, for their work and their markup and, you know, all that sort of stuff. But, um, there's no shortage. I tell you, there's no shortage of, of trucks and things here to buy. And, and that, that'd be an interesting question too, I guess, you know, like if we went back 10, 15 years ago, uh, you know, I guess you would have been seeing the most popular vehicles being like a Mustang or a Camaro, like that muscle car era. Um, and then I think we've worked our way to the point where they're so expensive that guys are now buying the trucks and that's why trucks have become a really popular thing. And, and even to the point now where I think that the trucks are becoming so expensive, like I wonder, you know, are you seeing a new phase of, of what's becoming a cool classic or is it just the square bodies and the OBS style are now the classics because they're getting older? What, what are you seeing happening? Well, I, I think the, the latest uh, movement has been with station wagons. Uh, over here, they call them long roofs. Uh, do you know what a station wagon is from the yeah. United States? And, you know, those were cheap for a long time. They've kind of got a little cult now of people that like them. And, uh, you know, there were some pretty cool wagons made back in the day. You know, they used to make hardtop station wagons. Uh, they were the mom and, you know, there were the minivans of their era. And uh, they sold a lot of them. So there's a lot of them out there that people can buy. And I see every day on Facebook and Instagram people that are talking about their long roofs. So that's probably one that's still reasonable. I think there are some models that are still reasonable of each car line. Uh, condition has so much to do with it. So who are you? Are you a guy that's going to try to buy cheaply like I would if I was going to own a vehicle? I want to buy it. for. I know what I'm going to do to it. So I don't want to put a lot of money in it. Uh, mm -hmm. On the other hand, somebody may, like you said, and I recommend buying up, you know, look, look for the very best one. And you're going to have to pay whatever the market price is for a good one. Uh, but that's just the way it is. You know, they seem to be going up and up and up. And it's, I think it's all auction driven by it to a certain degree, because every time Barrett Jackson comes out, there's a new set of prices and everybody buys cars. And here we go. We got a new market. Yeah. And especially if you're buying something that's not, you know, if, if you're buying a, you know, let's say it's a, a 52 Chev pickup, you know, you can go out and buy a tailgate reproduction off the shelf tomorrow, you know. But then you look at something like this Suburban, uh, you know, I know for a fact, if you want to buy a set of rear doors for these or the old clamshells and things like that, you know, you, you're talking over $1,000 for a rusty door. So it's a case of, um, you know, if you're buying something that is a bit of a unique-ish vehicle or a rarer vehicle, the better condition one you can buy, the better, because the, the repair panels are not available for them because they're not as popular. You know, like Brothers Trucks are not making rear quarters for a, a Chevy Suburban because... They just wouldn't sell enough to, to warrant building it. So then you coach building parts for a vehicle, which is where your hourly cost for your uh, repair like yourself starts to really go up, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And, you know, the other thing, you, when you mentioned Suburbans or panel vans or vehicles that were not big numbers selling vehicles, like, say, a Mustang, you know, they sold millions of them every mm -hmm. year. Uh, that then becomes a, a, a bad thing uh, 50 years later because there's no salvage yard vehicles out there. There's no used parts. 
and nobody, uh, because they don't have a lot of them, then the makers of the new material, you know, the new fenders and doors and all the stuff you'd like to buy, they're not interested because they don't have enough buyers. There's just not enough vehicles out there to support that. So you end up having to fabricate a lot of the stuff that you need to, to make it work right. Hmm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it's good fun though, isn't it? Like it's, um, you know, if I, if I could buy every vehicle I'd love to have, I, you know, I'd have to have a fairly big uh, garage going on over yeah. here. But, uh, yeah, yeah no, it's, it's, you know, I, I see, you know, funny ads where people have a house that's about the size of a, of a trailer and then the garage has got room for 18 cars and jokes about how people won the lottery. And then there's three truckloads of parts out there in front of their house to unload. And uh, so, so it's, it's a motivating business. It's also a motivating hobby. I, I, I have an affinity for old cars. I, I just like, them. you know, I just some people like dogs, some people like cats, uh, I really like old cars and I enjoy that. Mostly I, I really enjoy the stories. I, I like having people tell me uh, how they came by that car and all the, I have a Jeep as an example, the a panel wagon, you know, old station wagon fifties that a fella was riding in with his grandfather. He, he and his grandfather bonded and that was their vehicle. Grandfather died and grandmother sold it to somebody else. He didn't give it to him. He, he's traced that vehicle down, bought it and brought it to me to restore it. Mm. You know, that, that's the kind of the, the thing about really liking old vehicles. You just can't, you can't replace that. You don't, you know, a brand new car, you'd never do that, but an old car, you just look, you know, you just love the idea of having that back. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, Barry, awesome to talk to you and, and get a little bit of information. And, and so your um, Lindsay's classic cars uh, website that you're talking about, um, how's that spelt Lindsay's? Is it L? L-I-N-D-S-A-Y. Yep. Lindsay'sClassicCars.com. New site for us. We're just starting. You know, we've been at it a couple months. we got about 80, 90 cars on there right now. It's slow to get the word out. You know, you got to get it out over the Internet. So we have a fellow in Arizona, Brian Offenberger, that does our websites and helps us with all the Internet business. And he and Bernie Sanders are both helping us get that working. And uh, I have a blog and I have a newsletter, you know, and all those types of things. And they do all that for me. Thank goodness. Cause I, I can't type two words and get the words spelled rightly. You know, I'm, I'm a mechanic, you know, <laughs> that's what mechanics do. Yeah. And, and the site, it, you know, it's got, it's got classic cars for sale as well as uh, just information about old classics. Is that what you were saying? It does. Yeah. We, we only list classic cars. Uh, I made about 15 videos with uh, tips on, uh, things that you should think about when you're trying to buy a classic car. Those videos are going to be up on that site pretty quick. There's also, you know, a lot of the sites here in the United States already have a lot of information about that. Uh, I, I'm trying to emphasize it maybe a little bit more and personalize it for people so that they get an opportunity to uh, maybe pick up on a few things before they pull the triggers, they say, here and buy the vehicle. Hmm. Yeah, cool. So if I'm here in Australia and I'm looking to buy, a, a, you know, like a Ford pickup, I can go to the Lindsay's Classic Cars and do a bit of a search, and there's there's a chance there'll be a, a nice Ford pickup there that I can probably buy, um, you know, through the site. That's right. That's what that's what we're aiming to have. Right now, I think we have a lot of Corvettes. We don't have any pickups on there, uh, mostly cars. But but as it as it starts to expand, then yeah, you can get where well, there'll be a pickup a pickup section. And, People will be selling their vehicles there and you can buy and negotiate with them online. We're not really involved in anything other than just presenting a platform where you, you know, just like eBay does where they don't take a position in it. They're just going to provide a platform where you can buy and sell. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. We'll, we'll check that out. And um, yeah, and definitely, uh, you know, I, I guess if people have some questions or, or they want a bit of advice from um, someone with your experience and knowledge, you know, they, they can look you up and maybe send you an email and, You'll take five minutes again. I've got I've got an email, uh, Wilson Auto Repair at gmail.com, and uh, my website is wilsonauto.com. Uh, I can be contacted on either in either way, and I have lots of people I help every day that mostly they call me asking me looking for parts. I don't know why, uh, so I try to help them find ways to uh, look up rare parts that they can't find, like you're talking about with your suburban, yeah. and uh, I also try to help them with their problems. I, you know, they get issues that they can't figure out i'll try to work our way through it with them awesome awesome all right well barry well um thank you so much for reaching out and and thanks for having a chat and you know i could talk about old cars and trucks for days so uh 
really enjoyed having a conversation with you and uh you know obviously looking through you know your website you know you've, you've done so many great builds over the years and and uh yeah just appreciate someone else putting them back on the road really thanks i appreciate it really is nice to talk to somebody from australia i'll probably never make it there but uh hearing your perspective on what goes on over there was very interesting so thanks for having me on no fantastic thanks mate well that's the show for this week thank you for listening i hope you enjoyed this episode all information shared in our episodes is general and you should contact your engineer for advice on your build Please remember to rate and review the podcast on iTunes and share it with friends and fellow enthusiasts on Facebook, iTunes, or the good old word of mouth. I appreciate hearing feedback, good and bad, so please feel free to shoot me an email, classicpickuppodcast at gmail.com. If you are interested in advertising on the podcast and have a relevant business, please get in touch. And finally, if you have a project you're building, it can be hard to find the time to work on it. Just spend 15 minutes a day even if you only unbolt one panel or mount one bracket, you'll be amazed at how quickly it all adds up. The music you hear in the background of this podcast is called Hammer On Down by Uncle Bonehead. Until next week, enjoy the ride.